owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of this law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Lord, we ask that as we come to your word, you'd speak to us and inspire our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. I might just grab my notes. You'll thank me. I once hid Chris's sermon notes and gave it to him just before it went up. That was fun. I, that's not why he's not here now. Uh, he's on vacation for, a week, for the weekend. Uh, we're going to look at Romans chapter 13, which is an interesting uh, passage. And don't have time to do it now, but Romans 8 is pretty uh, famous for the description of what Jesus has done to bring God's love so very close to us. And just as things come close to us um, and fill our hearts, they also leave our hearts, right? So we lived, as some of you know, in England. Uh, I lived in England for 13 years, and we lived very close to, we didn't live in Chelsea, but we lived very close to Chelsea. So the football, the soccer team that everyone loved was Chelsea. And I had to fill my mind with what was going on, otherwise no one would talk to me. And it's amazing how this stuff would just leak out. And, uh, and though I would, didn't take long for them to realize I didn't really know anything about soccer, I knew enough that it would leak out. And so it is with love. So it is with love. And if you turn to your bulletins, we're just going to look at these first few verses. If you brought your Bibles... That's great. If you want to open your devices, that's great too. Um, Romans 13, verse 8, starts with kind of an arresting uh, thought. You see it right there. Oh, no one, anything. Um, which simply means pay what is owed. Some people have taken this and the verse that goes behind to say that Christians should never borrow um, you know, um, that's not what that's saying, but it's saying, pay what's owed. There was a rumor that went around at All Saints Dallas when I joined that because I'd studied at Oxford that I was a Rhodes Scholar. And uh, I, I had to finally say to someone, I said, look, I'm, I wasn't a Rhodes Scholar. In fact, it took me 15 years to pay off that debt. And uh, the bishop, Philip, behind me says, you know, David, sometimes you don't have to correct every rumor. I don't know if some of you are facing debt today. My hunch is a crowd like this, you are. And there is something wonderful about that moment when that last bit of the debt is paid. And, um, and here it says, oh, no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And so I don't want to brush over because debt is, is a, is, has a crippling Effect, can have a crippling effect to people if there isn't a plan in place. And, and, and I'm just going to say, if that is you, um, we don't approach, certainly it's saying, we don't approach debt 
with shame, and we don't think it means you're a bad person, and if you need help, I'd love to talk to you about it. I don't have the answer, but I know people who can help. And so I wanted to say that straight off the bat. Um, and of course, if, as you look at the text, verse 8 kind of goes on. It says that there is a debt that we are never free to pay, that we have to keep paying, which is the call to love one another. The call to love one another. Which is interesting, isn't it? What keeps us, begs the question, what keeps us today from loving one another? Um, there are a lot of reasons. I'm not going to name them all. But I, I've been reading this book that has really changed the way that uh, I've kind of approached this. And um, if you've been coming the last number of weeks, um, you, this won't be a surprise. But busyness, in my opinion, is one of the things that really prevents us from getting to know our neighbors, our literal neighbors next door, across the street, our colleagues, the people around us. Um, and I came across a Japanese theologian named Kasuke Koyama. Forgive me, I've not pronounced that correctly, I'm sure. But he's written a book back in the 70s, really challenging the pace of technological advancement and saying that there is a different speed to which life is meant to move that isn't tethered to the advancement. And how true is that today? Well, listen to what he says. And if, and I'm going to, you know, you've probably already been triggered. Uh, this will annoy some of you. It'll annoy those of you who have children and who are pulled in every direction at once because the, we feel the need to slow down and yet it seems so elusive. And I just want you to, to, to enter in as I share this into that tension because there is life here. There really is. This is what he says. Love has its speed. It's a spiritual speed. It's a different kind of speed for the technological speed of today. The speed of love goes on in the depths of our lives, whether we notice or not. And it tends to travel at three miles an hour. It's the speed we walk. In Jesus, God chose and chooses today to walk among us. Part of learning to love our neighbor today means we have to rediscover what it means to go slow in order that we might love. Learning to do life at this speed takes often difficult decisions. There are difficult decisions that need to be made with incredible intention. I mean, it was true in 1979, and I think it's all the more true today. Let me give you an example. I almost blew, I almost blew this spectacularly. I, um, my family tends to, I have a sister in uh, Germany, I have one in England, and my parents on the east coast of Canada, and everyone was in Toronto on Wednesday for uh, some family stuff, and so, I found a points ticket and I flew to Toronto for 24 hours. There is no such thing as a quick trip to Canada. <clears throat> Got there fine, all went well. On the way back, that storm hit New York City on Thursday where we saw the photos of the flooding 
and my flight was rerouted four times to the point where I texted Rachel and I said, Rachel, I may not make it home tonight. But finally, the lovely um, Delta agent got me routed to Atlanta. And so I sit down on my, in my chair, headed to Atlanta, and I'm next to this woman who, I'm bad at estimating age, but probably 72, 73, somewhere like that. And uh, I'm sat there, and I'm the guy that you don't want to be next to on a plane. Because I thought, great, we've got a two-hour flight to Atlanta, it's not too long. I'm going to practice what it means to be a good conversationalist. <laughs> Do you know how to be a good conversationalist? It's a tool everyone needs to know. You start very simply, tell me about your family. They got talking, then you ask a follow-up question, and then another follow-up question, until you get to a point where they really start coming to life. And so this lady next to me was headed to Santiago, Chile, to see her mother, who's still alive at 98. I mean, just incredible. And so we finished the family thing, and I said, well, yeah, well, tell me, what, what, do you, what do you like to do? And she starts telling me about her flowers, and I just keep asking questions, because I know if she gets to asking me about gardening, she'll realize I, I can kill flowers, that's about it. And then, you know, we, we kind of work through what she likes to do. She's obviously not working, but, you know, I kind of ask her, and I just keep going down, right? And then uh, we're, about, we're about to land, and she says, there's something different about you. What is it? I said, well, to be fair, I'm just trying to practice how to be a good conversationalist, and, you know, da 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 She says, no, no, there's something different about you, and I don't want to give up that I'm a pastor, because, you know, it could delay things, and... I have 40 minutes to make my connection in Atlanta, or I'm not getting home, right? And I'm, on, I'm in row 24, I'm in the middle seat, and there's like the odds of me making the connection are pretty close to zilch. And uh, she says, well, can I ask you something? I said, absolutely. I said, um, I need a favor. I said, okay, maybe I can help. And... Um, I have two very heavy carry-on bags in the compartment above. Would you be able to get them down for me? And I'm about to say, well, I've got a connection to make and I've got to be out of here quick. I said, sure. And something, by God's grace, I got it right. I said, yes, I'll get it down. And so we land, taxis, of course, you know, people flying for the first time don't know how to leave the plane. You know what it's like. They're kind of like, it's a mess. And I'm like, I'm not making the flight. And I get these two heavy bags down. I'm like, what are you packing? And then she, I, I realize she's not going to be able to get these two bags out of the plane. So I've got my carry-on. I've got her two bags. And I'm somehow trying to leave the plane and carry them for her. And all I hear her say is, oh, sweet Jesus, thank you. <laughs> I've been praying this whole flight that someone would help me get off this plane. And I'm like, well, Great. I've been praying all day I get home. And anyway, and I intentionally, you know, I'm not even moving three miles an hour. I'm like hitting the, you know, it's just a mess. We get out. Of course, she can't get it up the, ga- the jetway. So, I, you know, carrying this woman's luggage and um, trying to do it. You know, I've got the fake smile on, trying to fake it till I make it. And then we get her set away and she says, I can't thank you enough. You have literally answered my prayers. And I said, just wonderful, great. If you'll excuse me, I have a plane to catch. And I start walking, and it's so crowded I can't run. And I'm literally moving at three miles an hour. 
And by God's grace, because there's so many of us diverted from JFK and LaGuardia, they held the plane and I make the flight and I get home. Had I been focused on what, on me and on my need, I would have moved much quicker and I would have missed the opportunity um, of a great sermon illustration <laughs> and an opportunity to love this woman next to me, who I probably will never see again until, you know, the Lord returns. It's about moving slowly, and it's difficult. It's difficult when there's so many pressures and demands on our time. Um, and we'll talk more about how to practically enter into this in a moment. <clears throat> in verse 9, Paul carries on, and he cites a number of commandments from the Old Testament and the punch here in this verse can be missed if we don't remember who's the, what this guy was like who's sharing this. Paul says that it's all summed up in love. And remember that 20 to 30 AD, in that 10-year period, Paul studied the Torah in Jerusalem under Gamaliel. And he doesn't just study under the brightest mind of the time. He becomes a Pharisee, and Pharisees were known as an extremist sect that held to very strict observance to the tradition and the written law and believed themselves to be superior to everyone else around them because they were so good at following the rules. It made them holier than everyone else, and it made them this kind of first-class, platinum-tier uh, believer. 30 to 33 AD, Paul is given letters that enable him to persecute the followers of Jesus. And somewhere after that, he has an encounter with Jesus on the Damascus Road that utterly changes him. And what changes him is the love that he encounters. And you know, it's a bit, it was a bit controversial, I don't think it is now, but some would say that Paul wasn't converted. Instead, what Paul discovered, that's N.T. Wright's language, says that Paul wasn't necessarily converted. What Paul saw is that Jesus was the absolute fulfillment of everything Paul had been searching for in adherence to Jewish tradition. That kind of change never happens except for God. So what we have here is a nitpicky, obsessive rule follower who's so convinced that he was right, he had no difficulty demonizing those more liberal in their approach to life. He had no problem persecuting them. And then this very same man says the way to fulfill the law is by loving your neighbor as yourself. When you love others, you complete what the law has been after all along. He like becomes a hippie, which is so, um, it just doesn't happen, right? Something that shouldn't happen happens to Paul. And all of a sudden, he becomes overcome uh, with this knowledge of the love of Jesus. To know this love and make that love known to our neighbors Paul writes, if we do this, we won't steal because we'll be aware of the unhappiness 
that our actions will cause the other person. We won't kill or even have the wrong kind of anger because of the hurt that that will bring to others. We won't commit adultery because of the damage it does to marriage and relationships. This law code, these commandments in verse 9, don't sleep with another person's spouse, don't take someone's life, don't take what isn't yours, don't always be wanting what you don't have, and any other don't you can think of finally adds up to this. Love other people as well as you do yourself. You can't go wrong when you love others. When you add up everything in the law code, the sum total is love. Um, when I arrived at Theological College, a long time ago now, um, I was asked to sign a document that said that my life would follow the biblical pattern of relationships. I thought it was a joke because of where I was coming from. Um, and, and I kind of laughed, and then I realized, oh, this is very serious. I said, oh, of course, you'll sign anything. Yeah, I signed it and all that. And then I wasn't convinced that the students who were so kind of happy-clappy, I mean, I was really at that time a liberal heretic, um, well, just a heretic. Um, and, um, and all these people were really loving. I didn't believe it. I couldn't trust it. And so I, I did some things I wouldn't recommend. I went down to the corner store and I bought some cigarettes. And I took up smoking for a month in the, in the quad just to test them to see if they would still be loving. And they were. And they put up with all of my antics just to test to see if their love was genuine. And the, it, it was. They were strange. They had a, a weird obsession with herbal tea, which I still don't understand, but I'm not saying it's wrong. Um, and it was really their patience and their love that they showed to me that really led me to explore where that came from. And, you know, the, what happened was is um, the, 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 the faculty got confused because they were accustomed to people losing their faith at the theological institution, not finding it. And um, one of my tutors said, we don't really know what the theological term was, but you encountered the love of God and then took off. And that's really what happened. There's something about going slow, receiving the love of God and showing it to others that changes everything. So the law is summed up and fulfilled by love. Love is not an excuse to break the commandments, but a way of keeping them. Because the commandments were given out of love for us and are fulfilled by love. What's extraordinary about the Ten Commandments and the theologians and scholars in our midst will know is that for the first time in the history of religion, a God shared with his people where they stood. He put the goalposts up and they never changed. If you've ever been in a relationship and the goalposts keep changing and there are no boundaries, it's an incredibly difficult situation to navigate. You wonder, what, am I crazy? What's happening? But out of love, God at the very beginning, boom, puts up these goalposts. He says, this is the way to be blessed. Paul goes on in verse 14. We don't have it in the bulletin, but he says this. It's so extraordinary. He says, Jesus is the supreme example of love. Therefore, clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, what does that mean? Sounds like a great idea. How do we clothe ourselves with Jesus? How, do, how are we known by our love? How are we known by our peace, by our joy that we're singing? Well, it requires a different view, some would say, from just attending church to what Dallas Willard coined as becoming an apprentice of Jesus. Being prepared to follow the way. And what that requires is learning to pray like Jesus did, learning the scriptures the way that Jesus taught them, and learning to be moved in the way that he was moved. Jesus is pretty clear in John 15 when he says, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. Because everything I've heard from the Father I've shared with you. And by changing the goal mark for our relationship with Jesus from that of servants to that of friendship makes things simple and inherently complicated. The simplicity is we suddenly realize that he actually cares about what matters to us. The complexity comes in is that if it's a true friendship and what matters to us matters to him, then what matters to him must matter to us. And so this kind of idea of an apprenticeship means that in every area of our life, we're invited to grow in likeness to Jesus, which is impossible to do in isolation. I was the most loving, serene, peaceful, joyful, loving person that ever lived until I got married. Then I realized that was none of those things because all of a sudden I had to put someone else first. You can't grow in Christ-likeness in isolation. And that's why on this Sunday, we're inviting everyone to get involved in what we call connect groups. Connect groups are a place where we share a meal together every other week. We have intentional conversations. We pray for each other. And we have the conversations that carry an arc that don't just last for one night, but over a term. Where, as the sign says outside, we behold Jesus that we might become like him. Because it doesn't happen in isolation. It doesn't happen in isolation. So in community, as we pursue hospitality together, it really is the work of the Spirit that allows us to open up, to let those protective layers kind of fall aside, and allow ourselves to open up our hearts that we might receive encouragement from other believers. So that as we're encouraged, we realize, oh, there might be somebody else behind this who's doing this, who's the architect of this, and it actually is the Son of God, and that Jesus is walking among us through his body, the church. I'm aware that there's some here today who may be keenly aware of the absence of love, some who have been betrayed, been hurt, who are mourning the loss of a loved one or a sudden change in circumstances. And that's the incredible thing about the community of faith is that we're invited to do the thing that no one else does, to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Because if you're rejoicing, the last thing you want to do is enter into a place of mourning and vice versa. 
but for Jesus to walk among us at that spiritual speed, for the, the speed of love to move through the community, it invites us, he invites us to let that protective layer down and to do two things. To receive as much as we can. Receive as much as you can from all that's available. And then in time, to give as much as you can. I had to give time to the woman headed to Santiago. I didn't want to. It was the most costly thing I had at that moment. But to make the most and to receive the most, we also have to find a way to give of our time, of our talent, and our treasure. And it's as we do that, that together we begin to be shaped by Jesus. And it's in that way that we become known by the love, by our love that was really first his love. Let's pray. Why don't you stand with me and help you wake up. Lord Jesus, we need your help. If we're to love, we need to receive your love. So even now, Lord, we ask that by your Spirit, you would move in us and amongst us. We pray even now for those who are so keenly aware of the absence of love. We ask that you would bless them. We pray for any who are tasting this morning the bitter taste of rejection in some way. Thank you that you love us and you come to us and you, you receive us as we are. Thank you that the love you have for us is not earned, nor is it deserved, but it's offered freely. We pray, Lord, that you would help us as a church to receive as much as we can from you and from each other. That as we do that, we would be shaped by you and by each other. Lord, would you move in power even now And we pray for those in our midst who are grieving. We pray for those in our midst who are searching. And we pray for those in our midst who are dealing with the sudden reversal of a situation. Maybe those amongst us who've suddenly lost a job or in an unexpected transition. We pray that you would guide them and lead them and that you would use us their community to help them through it. And we ask all of this in your name, Jesus. Amen.